all the trouble you've started? Be they the government, be they industry, be they organized labor, be they anyone, or human being. When the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part, you can't even passively take part, and you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop, and you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio! We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyalty? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me! A dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given rights, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. Hello and and welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, uh, good evening if you're in Asia. Uh, Welcome to Free Association. It's about two minutes past four in the afternoon where I am. Bright and sunny day. Uh, I've slept through most of it because my my next door neighbour woke me up at four o'clock this morning screaming psychotically at her boyfriend. So uh, for about half an hour solid, I mean, she got to the point where she didn't have a voice to scream with. Very, very disturbing. So at that point, uh, I was awake until nine. Then I fell asleep, woke up and had a bath. Then fell asleep again, so it's all it's all been a bit upside down today, but uh, I'm sure it'll sort itself out sooner or later. I'll be able to get a, a decent night's sleep and be able to be awake during the day instead of doing three hours here and three hours there. Does it sound like I'm in a pub, Mitzi? Shouldn't sound like I'm in a pub. It still would be way too busy. Be way too busy to do anything from the pub on a Saturday afternoon 
there'd be 200 people, well, 100 people sat outside and stood outside around about. Uh, I've been, I have been to the pub a couple of times since they opened up again, uh, just for a couple of pints, but uh, it was too busy the first time. I don't like busy, busy bars. I like quiet bars. Uh, I like them when they first open and when, and when they're about to close. I don't like the bit in the middle with all the people in it. <laughs> That's just me. Uh, so, anyway, we're here. I've got a, a couple of thoughts. I'm going to just talk for a little while. I've got a video lined up. I was playing some, some Led Zeppelin yesterday, and I've kind of got onto a, a Jimmy Page vibe. All right, maybe I'll restart then. Um, see if I can get some better sound before I get before I get going. I'll restart it and see what happens, or at least log out and log in again. All right, try again. All right. <laughs> So was, yeah, there's been there was echoes on a few people's programs. So um, anyway, I've restarted it, so I don't know whether we'll get a clear connection or not. But it'll. Uh... All right, okay. So it's the echo from the room, or maybe maybe it's maybe it's Skype. Skype's a bit temperamental. So far, it's a better show than last week. Anyway, at least I've got got on board at, at two minutes past. Anyway, so I was I was playing Led Zeppelin last night. I was kind of I was finding finding buskers and and old school Zeppelin, and I got into a Jimmy Page vibe. I was thinking about Jimmy Page, and uh, and that took me to to Alistair Crowley. So I've got a a documentary about Alistair Crowley, which is about twenty minutes long. I want to play that, and then I'll give I'll give you some thoughts. But, but this is really just a, a biographical piece. So here we go. Uh, let me share my screen first off. Uh, so here we go. This should, let me know if this plays. Alistair Crowley may just be one of the most interesting men who ever lived. He was a self-proclaimed magician, scholar, writer, and even an undercover spy. He was known as the Great Beast 666 because some believe that he was the Antichrist written about in the Book of Revelation. Others believe that he was a genius and a visionary and that the world would not be the same if it wasn't for his teachings. Well, today we're going to talk about the life of this legendary figure and you yourself can decide if he truly was the wickedest man alive. In 1875, Alistair Crowley was born in Warwickshire, England, to two extremely religious parents. His grandfather had a successful distillery business, and yet his father never wanted to spend any of the money because he believed drunkenness was a sin. He became a preacher instead and passionately evangelized the teachings of a fundamentalist Christian group called the Plymouth Brethren. 
They taught young Edward to live life as simply as possible, and that men, they only existed in order to serve God. Any form of excess, whether it was spending money, dressing in nice clothes, or eating more than was absolutely necessary, was considered a sin, and the temptation to indulge in anything was seen as the work of the devil. When he was very young, Edward looked up to his father and wanted to become a preacher just like him. He obeyed his parents every demand, and instead of going outside to play with the other children, he instead studied the Bible. As you might imagine, this did not make him a very popular boy in school, and he was bullied mercilessly by the other children. His father, he died of tongue cancer when he was only 11, and he was left in the care of his overzealous mother. Living under such harsh conditions on a daily basis made Edward very sick. The doctors said that he was so weak he would die within just a few months if no changes were made. Thankfully, his uncle stepped in and suggested that maybe the boy needed to live in the countryside. Edward moved in with his uncle and began mountain climbing and running through the forest where he breathed fresh air. His uncle allowed him to have fun, which was a concept that had been completely foreign to him up until that point. He even brought him to pubs and let him drink underage and paid for a prostitute so that he could lose his virginity at the age of 15. After all, the doctors said that he might die soon, so his uncle wanted him to experience as much fun as possible with the time he had left. His health, though, it fully recovered, and he was sent back to live with his mother. But Edward had changed in his time away, and he was now in full-blown teenage rebellion. He knew that the Plymouth Brethren were to blame for his sickly childhood, and he rejected all of their religious teachings. He no longer wanted to be a preacher, and he wanted the free will to make his own life choices. He hated the idea that nearly everything that made people happy was considered to be a sin. His mother was shocked that her obedient son had changed so much in his time away and said that he'd become the beast from the book of Revelation. After arguing with her, he decided that if he needed to commune with the devil in order to live his life according to his own rules, well, so be it. He would become the beast that his mother said he was. One of the first wicked things he did was have sex with the maid on his mother's bed just to spite her. When she found out, she fired the maid immediately and the poor girl's reputation was ruined to the point where she could no longer work. The maid was forced into prostitution, and Crowley claimed that she became Jack the Ripper's first victim. He even said that he knew the Ripper personally, and that he was an occultist. Later, he would write about his formative years. I was in the death struggle with self. God and Satan fought for my soul those long three hours. God conquered. Now I have only one doubt left. Which of the twain was God? When Crowley graduated high school, he was sent away to Cambridge, where he introduced himself to his new classmates as Alistair Crowley. He joined the chess club and was able to win several competitions. In 1898, when Alistair was 22 years old, he fell in love with a fellow classmate, Herbert Jerome Pollitt. Very few people in the school knew that Herbert had an alter ego dressing in drag in private nightclubs as Diane de Rougie. Crowley wrote love poems about Herbert, and they are filled with anguish about his wish to be with him. Clearly, his bisexuality was even more motivation to reject Christianity. In the eyes of the church, his love for Herbert was considered to be an abomination. After graduating from university, Alistair inherited the Crowley family fortune and he could finally do whatever he wanted. He began to hire female prostitutes nearly every day and he bought books on the occult. He was writing dirty poetry and publishing them overseas under a pen name. When he was in his early 20s, he found out that he was not alone in his fascination with the occult and the possibility that magic could be real. He joined a group of aspiring wizards called the Order of the Golden Dawn, which had famous members like poet William B
Butler Yeats and Bram Stoker, the author of Dracula. They claimed that they had translated ancient Egyptian texts, old grimoires filled with ancient spells, and Jewish mysticism from the Kabbalah. They believed that they could perform real magic, communicate with angels, and get to know their inner soul. When he showed up to his first meeting of the Order of the Golden Dawn, Crowley was wearing a disguise and introduced himself as Count Vladimir Svarev. He was still afraid that his family would find out that he was dabbling in the occult, and he did not want to ruin his reputation. No one was convinced of his costume, though, because he was a baby-faced youth wearing a false mustache and speaking in a terrible Russian accent. Later on in life, Alistair Crowley actually became a secret agent for the British government during World War I because he claimed that he had successfully infiltrated a secret society. Now, technically that's true, but the result of his spy career was probably more along the lines of the Pink Panther rather than James Bond. After he felt comfortable knowing that the Golden Dawn took privacy very seriously, Crowley admitted to his true identity. Unfortunately, it already started things off on the wrong foot, and some people in the group found it hard to trust him. Despite this initial deception, Crowley took their teachings very seriously, and he was able to quickly move on through the lessons. The Golden Dawn wanted its new members to be able to get in touch with their inner soul before they were taught real magic. This was accomplished through a lot of discussions of philosophy, yoga, meditation, and mantras. They would write down their dreams in daily journals and interpret what they meant about their inner selves. However, there were some spells that they performed on a daily basis because they truly believed that they could summon angels to their aid. The lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram goes like this. In the name of God, the God of Israel, may Michael be at my right hand, Gabriel at my left, Uriel before me, Raphael behind me, and above my head, the presence of God. Crowley believed so strongly in the supernatural that he claimed that these were the early stages of a magical journey which would get him in touch with his guardian angel. He openly talked about his desire to call upon demons and the ancient gods. He incorporated psychedelic drugs into his routines because he believed that it intensified his spiritual experiences. This was all genuinely concerning to the rest of the Golden Dawn. Many of them were teetotaling aristocrats who felt that his ideas were radical, if not downright terrifying. The members did not want Crowley to rise in the ranks of the society because he was clearly interested in black magic and they believed that he would use his powers for evil. There was a strict rule that no one could pay one another to teach them magic, but he managed to convince one of the members to teach him higher levels of spells in exchange for free rent. In his books, Alistair Crowley casually mentions walking in on his roommate as he was levitating, as if this was totally normal among the members of the Golden Dawn. In 1899, when he was just 24 years old, Alistair Crowley bought a mansion on the shores of Loch Ness in Scotland called Bolskeen House, just so he could perform a spell called the Abramelin Ceremony. However, nothing actually happened. He never saw any angels or demons, no matter how hard he tried. Apparently, he grew tired of doing this ritual every single day without seeing any results, so he wanted off to do something else. Rumors spread that since he failed to finish the ceremony, this unlocked the gates of hell. Years later, Jimmy Page, the lead guitarist of Led Zeppelin, purchased Crowley's home on Loch Ness. He claims that the house was truly haunted by Crowley's demons. Alistair Crowley's first wife was a woman named Rose Edith Kelly. When they met, she was a young widow who was engaged to a man that her parents chose for her. Crowley convinced her to elope with him instead, after only knowing each other for just one day so that he could prevent her from entering into this arranged marriage. They ran away on a spare-of-the-moment honeymoon to Egypt together. Crowley brought Rose into a dark cave and began reciting his spells. He was reading from a book called Gotha, the Lesser Key of Solomon. The idea was that he would summon an Egyptian god, Horus. 
He went through his chant when Rose's head suddenly fell back. She claimed that in that moment she had a vision and heard the voice of Horus. Crowley was frustrated with Rose, assuming that she was playing a prank on him. He had been studying the occult and attempting to summon demons and gods for years, and they never appeared to him in any visions. He simply couldn't believe that it was possible for Rose to evoke Horus when she wasn't even trying. But she kept insisting that she truly did see something in the caves, and that the gods had been angry with him up until that point because of his arrogance. Still not believing her, Alistair took her to one of the museums and asked her to point out the god she saw. Rose walked right up to the correct image of Horus, exhibit number 666. After seeing this proof, they rushed back to their apartment in Cairo so that they could talk about the visions in private. Rose said that Horus had given her instructions on how to communicate with the spirits. She gave Alistair a spiritual ritual to perform. When he was done, he heard a whisper over his shoulder from the voice of his guardian angel, Iwas. The angel instructed him to write down lots of information over the course of three days, and he published this in a text called The Book of the Law. The most famous quote was, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Basically, this means do whatever you want with your own life. Crowley was thrilled with this revelation, and when he returned to England, he told all of his friends in the Golden Dawn about the voices that he and Rose had heard in Egypt. Many were reluctant to believe him, and some were angry, believing that he had been tricked into actually communicating with a demon instead of a guardian angel. At this point, they were still refusing to allow Crowley to graduate to the next level of the secret society, so he visited the leader of the Paris chapter of the Golden Dawn, MacGregor Mathers. He explained the situation back in London, and Mathers seemed to agree that Crowley deserved to enter the next level. When he returned to London with his certificate from Mathers in hand, the other members, they still wouldn't accept him. So he snuck into the clubhouse and he changed the locks. The next day, he laughed at the men as they failed to get inside. Not surprisingly, he was then officially kicked out of the Golden Dawn. A year later in 1905, Alistair Crowley took a group of his friends climbing on Kanchenjunga, which is one of the largest and most most treacherous mountains in the world. They got to 25,000 feet, but one of the men on the expedition, a photographer named Jules Jacot Guillemot, was angry at how Crowley was treating everyone else on the crew, and he wanted to take over the expedition. The expedition was marred by arguments between Crowley and the others, who thought that he was reckless. They eventually mutinied against Crowley's control, with the other climbers heading back down the mountain as nightfall approached, despite Crowley's warnings that it was too dangerous. Subsequently, several porters were killed in an accident, something for which Crowley Crowley was widely blamed for in the mountaineering community. It was claimed that Crowley sat inside of his tent and tried to summon a demon. At that very moment, an avalanche came down the mountain. They screamed for help, but Crowley ignored them, and he left them for dead. He later wrote that he had absolutely no sympathy for the unfortunate accident, even though many of the men miraculously survived. Alistair Crowley's marriage with Rose it fell apart after the death of their first daughter when she was only two years old. Even though they had a second daughter together named Lola Zaza, it was clear that they were no longer in love, and Rose fell into a deep depression. They got a divorce in 1909 based on his own adultery, and just two years later, he had to put her in an asylum for having neurological damage from her alcoholism. This tended to be a trend, because most of the people who even attempted to have a personal relationship with Crowley ended up having their lives completely ruined. It's sort of a chicken or egg scenario? Did his belief in the occult attract mentally unstable people into his life, or was his wickedness enough to drive 
people insane. Crowley was not very interested in being a father, so he left his daughter in the care of boarding schools and nannies. He started his own cult called Philema, where he taught the book of the law like it was the Bible. He started a commune in a villa in Italy that he called the Abbey of Philema. Everyone who lived there was encouraged to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. They took drugs, they had orgies together, and children were running around the grounds naked. One of the rooms in the villa was called the Nightmare Room, where Crowley painted terrifying pictures on the walls. He encouraged his followers to take LSD and stare at the frightening images until they completely lost fear of anything. The neighbors were shocked, and even to this very day, the locals say that the place is haunted by a curse. Rumor has it that the rituals became more and more intense, to the point where they even participated in bestiality and animal sacrifice. One of Alistair's lovers, a woman named Leia, had a nervous breakdown after this, and she went straight to the British press after she stated that one of the followers died after drinking the blood of a cat. The Italian authorities, they came in and forced the group out of the house and banned them from ever returning. The Abbey of Thelema is still abandoned to this very day, and as we said, people believe it's haunted. Alistair Crowley, he visited the United States to spread his message, and he inspired several people to practice the occult as well, including rocket scientist Jack Parsons and the founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard. He taught them how to perform sex magic, which was the belief that in the moment of orgasm, their intentions could be heard by the universe. Unfortunately for Crowley, all of the drugs and sex eventually caught up with him. He became a full-on heroin addict, and he lost a tremendous amount of weight. In the 1930s, a journalist labeled Alistair Crowley as a black magician. After years of running cults and buying properties all over the world, his inheritance had finally run dry. He was living alone in a boarding house, doing whatever he could to get his fix and stay alive. He decided to sue the journalist for libel, even though he had called himself a magician and the beast in his own books. He lost the case, of course, and he had to endure public humiliation. Many people never saw him in London again, so they spread a rumor that he had died from a drug overdose all alone in his boarding house. They felt that this would be a fitting end to such a wicked man, but in reality, Fate gave him a second chance at life. A young woman named Deirdre McClellan approached Alistair Crowley after the trial was over. She said that she had read all of his books and was a huge fan and she wanted to have a child. Now, this level of admiration, pretty much creepy enough for most celebrities to run in the opposite direction, but Alistair Crowley, he was so desperate that he agreed to go home with a stranger. McClellan helped him get clean from drugs, and she stayed with him through the worst of his withdrawal. After he was healthy again, they had a son together who was named Alistair Atatürk Crowley. Little Alistair was Crowley's pride and joy, and he felt a lot of regret for the way that he'd acted in his younger years. After living his entire life trying to prove that people should be as selfish as they could possibly be, he finally realized that true happiness and fulfillment, they came from family. They lived in a house in Cornwall, where they spent their summers on the beach. According to Deirdre McClellan, Alistair Crowley slipped into a coma just before he died. The sky lit up in a cacophony of thunder as the gods came to reclaim his soul. He died in 1947 at 72 years old. In reality, he died of chronic bronchitis, aggravated by pleurisy and myocardial degeneration. His funeral was held at Brighton Crematorium, and about a dozen people attended, and Lewis Wilkinson read excerpts from the Gnostic Mass, the Book of the Law, and Hymn to Pan. The funeral generated controversy and was labeled a black mass by the tabloids. Years after his death, artists and musicians from all over the world started to read Alistair Crowley's work, and it inspired them to live their lives in the way that they wanted. Hippies based their free love movement on his writings, and even John Lennon considered him to be a hero, putting him on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club. 
His motto of Do What Thou Wilt was inscribed on the vinyl of Led Zeppelin's album, Led Zeppelin III. David Bowie made reference to Crowley in the lyrics of his song Quicksand. His life was filled with outrageous claims, and without his attempts to shake up proper Victorian society, the world we live in today just may not have been the same without Alistair Crowley. So I sure hope you found that video interesting. Bit of a bizarre one, I know. If you did like Okay, so that's the basic history of, of Alistair Crowley. I'm not, I never have been a Crowley fan. I don't really know that much about him. But if we're talking about magic and ritual, um, then we're talking about intentionality. And intentionality is is exactly what's used in in healing, in, in Reiki and uh, crystal healing or any other kind of healing. There's an int intentionality for the highest good of the person you're talking to. So the difference between healing and black magic ultimately comes down to the intention of the person doing doing the magic or doing the healing. And you can you can add as much as much symbolism and as much ritual as you like, but that's what it comes down to ultimately. Different systems have different ways of using using symbols. Uh, Reiki uses symbols. Uh, one of the key Reiki symbols is uh, an outline of of somebody's head. The the mental emotional healing symbol is is basically a a drawing of of an eye, nose, mouth on one side, a line down the back with two two ears. So it's a drawing of a face, it's a drawing of a of a head, and it's uh, it's considered to be a sacred symbol, but it, but it's not. It's a drawing of somebody's head, so it's it's a mental emotional healing, because the the center of thought is considered to be the head. Well, center of thought isn't the head, but symbolically it is, because that controls the rest of the of the hierarchy of, of possibilities of thought. So, so we're talking about intentionality ultimately, uh, whether it's Alistair Crowley or whether it's uh, your local your local black witch, it's the same principle. Uh, yeah, I met a I met a woman in, woman in a, a bar a few years ago, and uh, we had a bit of a an altercation. And she told me she was a black witch, and uh, she was going to put a curse on me. And I just laughed. I just laughed. And uh, but just to be sure, I and I've got a bit of. A mirror protection around me. So I've, uh, years and years ago, I did a crystal healing course, and I put a. And one of one of the things that we did in that crystal healing course was a. A shield, a protective shield, of hematite. So there's about twenty pieces of hematite, around the outside of me, while we were doing this this particular. Initiation. And that's still there. I know. I know that's still there. So ultimately, if you put if you put a curse on me, it's going to reflect back on her, and it's it's that's that's the way it is.
And she did say she'd check for, for, for protection and she couldn't find any. But I know that protection's there. I've no doubt that that protection's there. It's been there for 20 years with me. So anything she does with a, an ill intention to me will just get reflected straight back at her. And that's the way I look at it. That's the way I look at it. If you look at me and you're seeing your own reflection and you're seeing something you don't like, then you're putting a curse on yourself. So it's up to you. If you've got a negative intention against me, you'll find that you've got, uh, you've got your own intention reflected back. And I don't have to do anything with that. I just, I just let it happen. At the time, I think I was setting the, setting the reflection level at multiplied by 10 because there were some, some issues going on around me. There was some, uh, some hostility going on around me. So I was re reflecting back times 10 of anybody's ill intention. And I slowly reduced that. When it started to look like the, the hostility was going down, I reduced, reduced the level of reflection. And, uh, and it calmed down a bit. But uh, the, the, point of the, the point of the story is that the, reflect, the, uh, the reflection and the protection that I've got in place is there, is there automatically after, after 20 years. That particular hematite shield initiation has been there for 20 years. And mostly I don't have any real major issues with people. Every now and again, there's somebody who looks at me and sees themselves and has a go at me. And it, and it creates a bit of a bit of turbulence, shall we say. But it, but it calms down soon enough. So it's just a matter of letting letting them work out what's going on. I don't. It's not really worth telling people if they're seeing themselves. If if all if all that everybody sees is a reflection of themselves, which is not quite true, but almost true. A large proportion of what I see in the world is a reflection of me. Some of it may not be me, but a good proportion of it. It's a good rule of thumb. To, to make the assumption that what you're seeing is is a reflection of yourself in in whatever situation you're in. So in a say in a philosophy group where you get into an altercation with somebody with a different philo philosophical outlook, which most of the last five years is has been the kind of level of level of hostility that I've faced. Has been people who don't agree with my philosophy. But if you get into one of those situations, that it's because they're seeing something in in you that they don't like, or if you react against somebody else, it's because you're seeing something of yourself in them, something that you haven't acknowledged, something that's buried in your shadow somewhere. And I'm using using shadow very loosely, just to indicate projection, basically. So my approach, my approach is to, to look for my shadow, is to look for things, look for situations, look for people that will, that will show me my shadow. And sometimes that means people with ex, 
extreme, extremely bad habits, extremely bad attitudes to life. But if there's something buried in my subconscious, I want to see it. I want to see it so that I can transmute it. Anyway, so that's my that's my take on Alistair Crowley. It's all about the intentionality. All about the intentionality. And he set up a couple of couple of groups, or he took over a couple of groups that already existed. Uh, the order of, the order of the Golden Dawn is a well known ritual magic group. The Thelema people are are into their ritual and sex magic. There's also the OTO, which is another, it's the Ordo Templi Orientis, which, uh, which Crowley took over, which is a bit more sinister. I mean, a little bit of sex magic here and there isn't going to do too much harm, provided it's, con- it's consenting adults. I'm not too worried about that. But the OTO, I'm a bit more concerned about. So that's that's the that's the intentionality piece, that's the ritual magic piece, and it's there in a number of a number of systems. You've got you've got um, some of this some of this is is in spiritualism. It's in the spiritualist church. There's a a system of developing healing. Over over two years, I think they do it. The National Federation of Spiritual Healers does something similar. All about developing intentionality and getting getting people used to kind of channeling energy. The same thing the same thing that we do with Reiki, except with Reiki it's over two days for the first level, two days for the second level, then the master level would be four or five days. That's usually how it's taught. Some people do it on the internet in in 20 minutes, but I wouldn't call that Reiki, really. You might be able to do some energy channeling, but uh, you have to put a bit of work in to, to understand how it, how it happens. And you need practice. You can't do anything without practice. And you, the idea of, of just having an initiation without some teaching is a bit, a bit strange to me. It's it's letting people loose with a with a submachine gun really because if their intentionality is is negative, you've just given them a submachine gun. If their intentionality is positive, you've given them a very useful tool that can be applied in general and specific ways to improve people's health and well-being. But you're not going to know that on the internet in 20 minutes or, or, or in an hour. You're not going to know the intentionality of people. So that, that concerns me a little bit. It's like Reiki over the internet's a, a little bit of a concern in terms of the initiation. You can get away with it probably if, it, if, your, if your source of clients is, is a good place. If your source of, if your source of, of initiation clients is a healing forum. You're not really likely to have very many Crowleyites or black magicians in there. So there's there, there's that element to it as well. But there's another Crowley video that might be worth 
be worth playing just to get. Oh, I've lost it now. Bear with me a second. Just try to try the search again. It'll come up. All right, there was a 20-minute one here. Somewhere 25 minutes this one is. So that'll take us. I'll cut it off before the end, but it'll take us to the end. And this is a. his father owned a lucrative brewing business. But whilst Crowley's family seemed pretty tight, some say Crowley felt out of place from the very beginning. His parents were devout Christians and were keen on passing down their faith to their son. But Crowley had come to reject the notions of Christianity and like most rich kids, they began to act up in an effort to escape their father's shadow. When Crowley's father died of cancer, Crowley began to turn into a nuisance at school. This rebellious nature followed him throughout his college years, where he began to openly condemn Christianity, calling out its inconsistencies to his teachers and his peers, before turning his back on his faith entirely. He began to smoke excessively, began to practice masturbation, and eventually upgraded to buy prostitutes, all to show his disdain for the religion. Some say that this defiance was his way of demonstrating that God had no power over him, and that man could do as he pleased, if he cast religion aside, a notion that would become a part of his very own doctrine. Of course, after having sex with all these prostitutes, he did contract gonorrhea. Crowley spent a whole load of time at university playing chess. He also developed a love for literature and poetry, and he'd actually go on to publish some acclaimed content. It was also here in university that he began to experiment with his sexuality, identifying himself as bisexual and entering his first gay relationship with Herbert Charles Pollitt, the president of the drama club. Unfortunately, Crowley became more and more interested in Western esotericism, and it was not something Pollitt was able to really get into himself. Because of this, their relationship ended, though it is thought it is not a relationship that Crowley was ever quite able to get over. It is also here during his years at university that he was thought to have enlisted with the British Secret Service, although some believe that this was later dropped for a career in the occult. By his mid-twenties, Crowley had moved to Switzerland and met a chemist named Julian L. Baker, who, much like Crowley, had an interest in alchemy. Upon returning to London, Baker would introduce Crowley to an occult society known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, a secret organisation that was said to have practiced things along the likes of alchemy, astral travel, and other forms of supernatural magic. But whilst this seemed right up Crowley's street, some believe that he didn't join the society because of his interest in the supernatural, but because he was indeed still secretly working for the British Secret Service, and had been instructed to infiltrate the faction and discover what it was that they were actually doing behind closed doors. Crowley would later seek tutorship from Alan Bennett, another member of the Golden Dawn, who would come to teach Crowley about magic, the use of rituals, and the use of drugs. Whether the latter had some influence on Crowley's success in the business of the occult is up for debate, but whether or not Crowley was actually being taught magic at the Golden Dawn, it became apparent that the other members didn't like him much. They were repulsed by his bisexuality and lawless lifestyle, and wanted him expelled from the society. 
He was refused initiation in the second order of the society and held from progressing. But this didn't stop him. He went straight to the leader of the Golden Dawn, Samuel Liddell McGregor Mathers, and was able to talk him into granting him admission, an act that would drive a wedge between the community of the Golden Dawn. Unfortunately, both Crowley and Mathers would soon be isolated from the group when they tried to snatch the Vault of the Adepts, a temple space used by the Golden Dawn members, only to lose a court case as well as their positions in the society. Some believe that all of this, however, was Crowley's intention, who was supposedly still working for the British Secret Service, who had ordered him to undermine Mather's influence on the rest of the Golden Dawn and see him evicted from his post. Crowley would proceed to travel all over the world, from Mexico to India to even Japan during the early 1900s, where during this time, he would continue to practice in the ways of the occult. It was when he arrived in Paris did he become friends with the painter Gerald Kelly, and perhaps more importantly, friends with his sister. It's understood that Gerald's sister Rose was being forced into a marriage, and so in order to save her from this fate, Crowley married her instead, and stole her away to Egypt. Whilst this ruined his friendship with Kelly, and tarnished Rose's name amongst her family, Crowley did end up falling in love with her. It is here in Cairo with his newfound wife where Crowley's story really begins to take a strange turn and where the root of the spiritual philosophy of Thelema began to grow. It was in February 1904 where both Crowley and his wife Rose began to perform rituals that invoked the ancient deities from Osiris, Isis and Horus, all the while practicing Islamic mysticism. Crowley would come to declare that during these intense rituals that saw them communing with the gods, Rose became frequently delirious and would repeatedly tell him that the gods were waiting for him. Perhaps more peculiarly, she would wind up leading him to a museum where she became entranced by a 7th century still known as the Still of Ankh-Efen Khonsu. Whilst it may have appeared to the regular man as an artifact from an era long ago, to Alistair and Rose, this piece became a central part of what would become Thelema, and would take on the name The Still of Revealing. To Crowley, the piece depicted the three central gods of the Egyptians, that being Nut, Hadith, and Ra Horus. Coincidentally, Crowley also became fixated on the fact that the still had been catalogued in the museum under the number 666, the Mark of the Beast yet another essence that would become central to his belief system. But how exactly did Crowley come to these revelations? Well, he would later testify that he would hear a voice talking to him, that which belonged to a spirit known as Iwas. He explained that Iwas was a messenger of the Egyptian god Horus, and that he would come to write down everything the voice told him. These writings would eventually be the sacred text of the Thelema belief, and would be known as the Book of Law. Whilst I myself haven't read the book, it does sound morbidly fascinating. Firstly, one of the main testaments is that humanity was entering a new phase, or Aeon, and that Crowley himself was the chosen one, a prophet, so to speak, who would lead mankind into this new era. In this new world, a new law would be established, that allowed each man to essentially live his life as he chose to live it. In fact, there was even a phrase established within the community of Thelema 
and would become the mantra of the entire philosophy. It went something along the lines of, do what thou wilt. That being said, given Crowley's arrogance and unwillingness to do what others told him, he initially resisted the spirit Iwas and resented the writings he had penned. He ignored most of what the text dictated, that which insisted he steal the steel of revealing from the museum and establish his own fortified island for Thelema and its members to grow. Crowley's life would take some unexpected twists and turns throughout the early 20th century. His wife gave birth to a daughter, appropriately named Lilith, but unfortunately the child would die very young, something that Crowley would come to blame his wife for due to her apparent alcoholism. His marriage broke down and he was linked with a string of affairs before welcoming another daughter into his life by Rose. He would eventually divorce Rose by 1911 and she would become institutionalized because of her drinking problem. He would continue to conduct rituals in order to re-establish a connection with the spirit Iwas, which is something he claimed to have achieved whilst under influence of cannabis. He also began to champion cannabis as an inducer of the mystics sort of a bridge between the two states of consciousness. Iwas would dictate two further texts to him, and the idea of Thelema was padded out with even more ideas and so-called truths. Crowley's extravagant lifestyle would soon see his inheritance dry up though. His poetry and his prose didn't really sell that well, and given that he was either hiking in Naples, where he was responsible for several deaths of his expedition due to an accident, or shooting robbers in India, something he was eventually kicked out of the country for, the money sure wasn't going to last long. After all, he was hardly a frugal man, and what with the daughter to look after, you'd think a man with such high intelligence would have saved some income for the more important things. In order to make some cash, he was hired by the Earl of Tankerville, a superstitious man who had come to believe he was under the attack of witchcraft. Given Crowley's notoriety on the subject of the occult, it became something of a spiritual bodyguard for him. He also became tutoring students who wished to learn about the occult, and would eventually take one of them, a man named Victor Newberg, as a sexual partner. Crowley would also found a successor to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, and would name it AA, and would operate in the same way that the Golden Dawn did, but with much more Thelemic influence. After travelling to Algeria, Crowley began reciting from the Quran on a daily basis. He would also come to publish many of his beliefs and ideas in a book known as the Equinox, something which longtime friend Samuel Mathers would resent him for, because he accused Crowley of publishing the secrets of the original Golden Dawn. In fact, Crowley would become convinced that Mathers had actually been using magic against him, but this might have been said to drum up more excitement over the occult and achieve more attention from the media as his fame began to grow. He began to sensationalize the occult, pandering to the ideas that he was a Satanist and that he was conducting human sacrifices, despite engaging in neither. Of course, all this drama attracted new members to his newfound society. It wouldn't be long before another society put Crowley under their crosshairs and claimed he'd stolen their secrets and published them too. The Order Templi Orentis, another occult organization ran by German occultist Theodor Roos, accused Crowley of this in 1912, but the two would actually become friends and Crowley would even be appointed as the head of the British branch 
of the Ordo Templi Orentis. He was even able to incorporate more of the Thelemic beliefs into the Order and devised a sort of sex magic, that which was based off of anal sex. Unfortunately, there was more heartbreak on the horizon for Crowley when his longtime partner Newberg left him after an intense ritual that lasted for six weeks. It had contained a strong use of drugs and implemented a great deal of sex acts in order to invoke the gods Mercury and Jupiter. But there was something about this particular ritual, or maybe this was the last straw that broke the camel's back for Newberg, that saw him distance himself from Crowley, something that Crowley would curse him for. By the time of the First World War, Crowley would move to New York and interestingly began to support Germany against Britain. He would declare himself to be of Irish heritage and managed to work his way into the employ of George Sylvester Virok, a German spy who published a propagandist paper known as the Fatherland, which sought to keep the United States neutral during the conflict. Crowley would be declared as a traitor to Britain for his newfound allegiance, but as it turned out, Crowley was said to have been working as a double agent, once again for the Secret Service. His objective was to infiltrate the German operations in New York, and to undermine them by any means possible. Establishing himself as a writer for the German outlet Fatherland allowed him to control the voice in parts of the paper. Furthermore, it has been theorised that Crowley was responsible for the German Navy attacking the Lusitania, an English ocean liner that traversed into American waters, but this would ensure the Americans would keep out of the affair after witnessing German strength. But Crowley's true intention was more sinister, for he knew the Americans would not allow such a thing to go by unattended in their own waters and would be a catalyst to their eventual involvement. By the 1920s, Crowley was a desolate man, with virtually nothing of his inheritance left. Somehow, he would have just enough to move to Italy and rent a villa, which would become known as the Abbey of Thelema, a temple of a sort for the members of his growing faction. Here, members were given their own robes and would perform rituals to the ancient Egyptian sun god Ra. Whilst here at the Abbey of Thelema, he began to nurse or indulge a growing heroin addiction, which he'd earned after a doctor had prescribed him the drug to calm his asthma. He took up painting as a means to facilitate his gaudy lifestyle and went on to write a commentary of his Book of the Law. Perhaps one of his most insidious ventures here in Italy, though, was that he allowed children, under the guise of education, to come and watch acts of sex magic. As if that wasn't bad enough, his heroin addiction soon turned to a cocaine addiction. He began to neglect not only himself, but the Abbey of Thelema as well, whereby it became an unsanitary dwelling, frequented by stray cats and dogs. Not all the members of the Abbey of Thelema were willing to put up with this shoddiness, however, and many chose to leave, some became appalled by the same-sex rituals that they were forced to engage in in order to maintain their membership, and others simply didn't have the bones for some of the tasks required. There had been reports of members being forced to drink the blood of sacrificed animals, and some who were required to cut themselves each time they used the pronoun I. When these allegations became common knowledge of the Italian government, Crowley was quickly deported and the Abbey of Thelema was closed. 
Towards the end of his life, Crowley went through a string of lovers who he performed sex magic with. He was marred by poor health, however, and you could say he was pretty much on his last legs. How he got anyone to sleep with him must be a testament to his character. He must have had some serious game. He moved to France during this time, but just like in Italy, the French government got word of what they deemed were sordid endeavours and quickly deported him. They right, okay. Something, something not right with Skype today, but uh, we got through it. We did all right. Better than last week. Um, I've got 45, 50 minutes of material at least this week, so it's all good. Uh, so the the reason I wanted to focus on Crowley, apart from the Led Zeppelin, Jimmy Page connection, is Crowley's in, in a lot of things. He's underneath a lot of things in the New Age movement. There are other sources in the New Age movement, but some of it is Crowley. And it's a good idea to know the history so that you can see where the influence is. I'm, I'm getting more and more to the point where I think the history is as important as what's going on now. Because if you can see where things are coming from, if you can see a lineage, a transmission of ideas, then it might be possible to to counter those if you know the the, the fundamentals of it, the like the very simple basis at the beginning will tell you the model that's being used underneath a lot of things. And in this case, it's sex magic. And, uh, okay, so that's pretty much it. Uh, my name's Dennis. You can find me online in a variety of places. Uh, at the moment, uh, Podomatic. Uh, I've got a, a podcast there under the name of Radio Projects. So... If you go to radioprojects.podomatic.com, uh, I've got a another another project, another podcast at radioprojects.podbean.com. Uh, both of those are active at the moment. The website that's active is shadowplay.live. You can find me there as well, and on Discord. There's a Reiki initiation server. It's just called Reiki Initiation. That's a discussion group. And I sometimes do do live healing sessions there as well, depending on, on how much time I've got and what, what kind of mood I'm in. And if there's anybody interested in having in having having it happen. So that's where I am, that's what I'm doing. Hopefully I use the radio show a little bit more for for the history of ideas, I'm not necessarily going to get into any current events, but I might pick a current event and take a look at, at the the history from 100 years ago that leads up to it and kind of describe the thread of ideas that produces it. I think that's quite a, to me, that's quite a useful thing. And uh, Crowley's, Crowley's one of those people that you'll find that references to the book of the law, references to uh, sex magic rituals in various places in the New Age, in the Church of Satan, for example. 
which isn't really new age, but it's it's associated. Uh, so that's it from me. I'll see you next week. Thanks for thanks for your company. Thanks for listening, and uh, have a good week. Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Be evasive. But that doesn't mean that they're telling the truth as opposed to fiction. And Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. And there were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came and unto the daughters of men, indicating that there were giants before the Nephilim. And sons of God, plural. They weren't talking about Jesus coming down. No, no, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm Steve Crawford, host of Factor Theory Live. Join me every Sunday night from 10 p.m. till midnight Eastern Standard Time on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Check it out. Thank you for listening to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. Any commercial advertising you may hear in this program is of the sole discretion and benefit of the host of whose program you are listening to. Revolution Radio does not endorse any commercial products, nor does it accept monetary compensation for on-air advertising of commercial products, nor will it ever. We are and shall remain 100% listeners supported. Any product advertising on this program are considered used at higher risk, and Revolution Radio shall not be held liable for any claims or damages received from any product advertised within this program. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps.